Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hey, Guy. How you doing? Yeah, good. I was wondering this week, I was wondering, lying in bed late at night, thinking of landfill sites and how so much of what we've done in our lives <laughs> must be sitting in the strata of landfill. And I was thinking about. This <laughs> <laughs> is starting well, isn't it? It's a cheery I'm start. Not... Well, it's four a.m. You know, it's what you think about, isn't it? <laughs> that and dying. <laughs> and 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 I was thinking because some of them said to me, you know, do you did you keep all your old clothes from the eighties? And the early eighties was the most interesting, you know, also designed by sort of St Martin's yeah, School yeah. of Art fashion kids, you know, swathes of tartan, etc. And uh, I was thinking, no, I, t- I said no, I you know, I I. I sort of put them in black bin liners, probably, and they either got dumped or I, I actually I just took them to Oxfam. What did you do with yours? I've still got some. I kept I, I kept sort of like one example of everything, which all fits my son beautifully, and he won't wear it. And I've tried. I've, I've got. I've made him try it on. He wore my Johnson's D-Mob suit oh. in a school play in an Ibsen play at school, and he oh, looked wow. magnificent. Wow, so, the Johnson D-Mob suits were really something to have, weren't they? Yeah. And you were a big yeah, man yeah. on Scott Crowler suits as well, which looked like, you know... I was huge on Crowler. I've still got some of that. Yeah, I've still got some the, of the Crowler stuff. Like yeah, like sofa was, covering. Yeah. But yes, are you, are you waiting genius. for your V&A exhibition? Is that what it is? Where you could have... Well, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> See, I think what's happened is a lot of my clothes... I think I'm maybe in the village hut down here. I reckon, because <laughs> you give them to Oxfam, etc. I reckon if you we went to the... So if we acted like Stanley and went in search of the source of the Nile, and we, there's probably some African king wearing, wearing my old true suit or something. Uh, whatever. Brilliant. Anyway, but what has this got to do with Bob Ezrin? Absolutely I thought nothing. You could do something about him. Uh, yes. I, I, so this is someone that you've worked with, Bob Ezrin. Uh, but he's Uncle Bob to me. He's the first person who had that mantle that. Trevor Horn was to have, which is if he produced an album, didn't really matter who it was because you knew it was going to sound amazing. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the first time I read, you know, I remember seeing his name on Alice Cooper album yeah. labels. And I I think my early association was, if it was Bob Ezrin, it was theatrical and it was big. Exactly. Absolutely that. I mean. Exactly. That's why I remember when it's like when, you know, when you finding out that he'd, he'd done Pink Floyd. It's just like, oh, my God, of course. Yeah. The Wall. And he yeah. co-wrote The yeah. Trial, didn't he? The, 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 one of the... He co-wrote The Trial. Well, he wrote the, we'll, we'll, we'll cover all that. He basically wrote the scripts for it. and We will. So he did and, all... And he also, it's got to be said, if it wasn't for him, there would be no Comfortably Numb. And I think that counts as an actual service to humanity. Wow. Wow. Every single Alice Cooper album, I think 15 albums he's produced. Uh, he did, he missed, on, no, 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 on, no. hang on. Come on, Bill, no, bring he it. He missed the first two, uh, it has to be said. That was on the Zappa label. Do you remember Frank Zappa had the That's sign, right. sign yeah. Alice? We had Alice on. You can yeah. go and look up Alice on one of our earlier episodes. Uh, he's Indeed. done Kiss. He's done Aerosmith, Deep Purple. Peter Gabriel won. That, oh, come on, what, which was, which is still, if you listen to that now, man, what a it's one of the most perfectly produced records. Well, ever. you wonder if the if the 80s production sound was was invented then in 1977 with Gabriel One. And and of course Lou Reed's Berlin, which actually at the time got a bit sort of, you know, some bad press, but in retrospect well, is a, a superb yeah, it's record. magnificent. Yeah, but the t- it's it's a hard listen. <laughs> yeah, it depends where you are. It depends if it's four in the morning and you're thinking of landfill sites. You're thinking of landfill. <laughs> Then, then perhaps children screaming because they're being taken away from their mother isn't so bad. <laughs> okay, on that note, let's get him on. <laughs> Welcome to the Rock on Tours. <laughs> okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Come in Toronto. All rise for Bob Ezrin. Boys, Yay! boys, crazy boys. <laughs> Hang loose, boys. <laughs> Got a rocket in my pocket. <laughs> Stay loosey loose, boys. Okay. Uncle <clears throat> Bob, Uncle Bob, there you are. You said that's that's why we love you, Bob. We were talking about that because you're you are like us. You're really you're a West End Wendy. We were saying in in our intro that you know when I was a, I, I won't say a kid. I'll say a young man, and I saw your name on a record. I knew there was going to be a certain amount of theatricality. I mean, you can't. I mean, Billion Dollar Babies is just drenched in theatricality. Even that opening song. I wanted to ask you about that opening song. Um, Hello, hooray. Because that's written by a Canadian. Was that something to do with you? Um, well, yes. Uh, I heard the song on... songs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no. It only, the only thing it had to do with me was that I had heard this song. And um, it, it, was, uh, it was written by a guy by the name of Rolf Kemp, K-E-M-P-F, who at the time was living not far away from Toronto, and uh, I didn't know that. I, I had heard it on a Judy Collins record, and I thought, whoa, you know, if we took this and made it into a, like, rock opera, and we changed the lyrics, of course, this would be a tremendous overture for Alice for the next record. 
So I looked into finding the guy and it turns out he lived 30 miles away from me. And uh, I pitched him with the idea. He was fine with it. And and then I pitched it to uh, the band. And uh, surprisingly, they were okay with the idea. You know, I had it in my head already, kind of when I went into the rehearsals with them as to what the potential of it was. That boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom. That's like, you know, yeah. that's... And Alice That's just sings Wagnerian, it yeah. But in a way, yeah. it's a, almost like a precursor to In the Flesh, isn't it? I guess, yes. It's, but, I mean, it's not, it's not so much a precursor to, it's just a through line, just, you know, yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, from, uh, from the time bad I question. first started playing. From the, well, it's not a bad question. It's a, <laughs> it's, an, it's a perfectly valid question. I mean, I'll tell you, the one thing that is true is that I, I go into every project forgetting everything I ever learned, not knowing what I did the last time, and just, you know, starting afresh. However, I bring in my sort of natural tendencies, <laughs> we'll call it that, and some of the, you know, those riffs that are stuck in my head that I can't get rid of that keep showing up. You know, like that kind of stuff. So, right. yes. Yeah, but your theatricality is definitely uh, something that we know we, we we associate you with whether it's not whether it's working with Alice or whether it's working with Kiss or or on something like The Wall and and someone like Roger, you know, who, who, and pulling off a great big theatrical show like that. You know, I I wondered actually thinking about that sound on Billion Dollar Babies and that opening that triumphal opening, and it and it, it brain salad surgery and Emerson Lake and Palmer had had a little bit of a bent towards that. Oh, totally. Stuff. Well, I think I think all of this comes from you know, having classical background and it would have been referred to it in those days as prog progressive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's the, we haven't had that word for a couple of episodes. Good. Well, thanks for bringing it back, Bob. <laughs> well, you know, look, there are moments in history and moments in, in music that are gentle and sweet and where there is no conflict and there's no, you know, there are no major hills, no major valleys. And then there are moments of explosiveness in history and, and in the arts, you know. And so rock, you would have to say rock was explosive in its nature as it got louder. Yeah, so a guitar and a drummer in a, in a festival were louder than anything you'd ever heard before in your life, right? So we were into loud, we were into big, we were into powerful, and it was only a matter of time before somebody looked back and went, oh shit, that stuff was pretty heavy. Let's do some of that. I wonder, you know, was there any, you know, being in the early 70s, was there a sort of East Coast versus West Coast feel where the West Coast had the sort of, you know, the very fey sort of singer-songwriter stuff and then the East Coast had its had its rock and its art and its Warhol and Iggy? That place and that time on the West Coast was really laid back, chill. People were like, you're getting in touch with themselves, you know, and life was beautiful and there was nothing to complain about. Our house is a very, very, very fine house. We're in New York. They're going like, fuck you, buddy. You know, did he get it? I'm going to slit his throat on the pavement and write about it. You know, so and I'm going to do it to an overture. The Troubadour and CBGBs are kind of going to the Troubadour and just chill with a bunch of your best buds. Everything is cool. And, you know, man. And everybody said, dude, hey, dude, it's beautiful. And in New York, like, nothing was cool. Everything was tough. So are you an East Coast producer? Is that what you were? 
Well, I, you know, I grew up in a city, even though many people in the world don't believe it. Toronto's actually a major city, <laughs> and, and there are millions and millions of people who live here. And um, when I was a kid, it was kind of a gritty place. And um, I spent a lot of time downtown where it was very gritty. And then when I switched to New York to go work, I was at home. I just, New York was just all of that, but on steroids. And um, I loved, I loved the energy of it. And I loved the noise of it. And I loved the impulsion of everything. And um, that energy fed my, my work, of course. Yeah. And I moved there like as quick, as soon as I could, I was like, get me an apartment. And where was that? You were, you were, were you producing by that point? Yeah, yeah, no, I'd, I'd already had... So you were produced really young, didn't you? You sort of accidentally produced or sort of weren't supposed to be producing. So who was it? It was the big Canadian producer I, who I did... shoved you in charge of something. Jack, Jack Richardson, Jack who, Richardson, who may be the, the greatest Canadian producer ever. Jack saw something in me, and I thought, I mean, the story is this. Um, Michael Cole and I were co-managing a band. I, I had been playing in clubs and messing around with folk music and then a little bit of folk rock and that sort of thing on the periphery. I wasn't really in it until Michael Cole and I found this band called Icarus, the lead singer of which was Eddie Schwartz, who wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot. You guys know yeah, very well. Yeah. And uh, not at that time later, but um, so Michael Cole, who ended up becoming the biggest promoter in history before Live Nation, yeah, we've just been on tour with him, as you, yeah, as you know. Well, there you go. Exactly. Michael promoted the, the, the tour you gentlemen just did with Nick. And, um, and you know, used to, pro used to promote the Rolling Stones, YouTube, Pig Floyd, Barbara Streisand, you name it. Um, but back then, we were two teenagers from Toronto. And uh, he thought managing them meant booking them in clubs. And I thought managing them meant working on their songs. You know, as you do. So, so that's what we were doing. And, and then a show came up where there was an opportunity to put a rock and roll band in the show and get them paid. And uh, that looked good to us as managers. So, and I happened to be the script editor of that show. So I convinced the producers to bring Icarus, our band, into the show, put them on stage and pay them. Um, and the music director of the show, didn't really know how to deal with those guys. So I just kept doing what I had been doing with them. And I worked on arrangements and stuff like that. Um, the music director came in, Alan McMillan, and sort of, you know, put us in the right places and that sort of stuff. And, and, um, and he liked what I had done. And he said, I want my partner to meet you. He could use somebody like you. I think he was thinking of me as maybe an arranger or a, an assistant to Jack. So I went in there to talk to Jack about it. And I said, I want to be a manager. I want to work on songs. I want to work on arrangements. I really love bands. He goes, no, 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 no. You don't want to be a manager. You want to be a producer. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but I said, yes, sir. That's exactly <laughs> what I want to do. So he offered me a job and I, and I took it. And then he took it on himself to train me. He, he saw something in me and spent a huge amount of time and and personal capital like he just like every moment he had that was free where the two of us were together he was teaching this is this kind of microphone this is where you put that this is why you do this oh, on a wow. session and why you don't do that and then he sent me to the eastman school of music for two weeks for a kind of 
a course in production and engineering, I guess it was, under Phil Ramone. Whoa! Who, the legendary Phil Ramone. Yeah. And Phil was a friend of Jack's. They had worked together. So I went down to, to Rochester, New York, to Eastman School for two weeks, and Phil saw something and that he liked. And so he took an interest. And um, I got a little extra time on consoles. I got a little extra direction. And by the time I left that two weeks, I felt like I could do it. Yeah, I felt like like I could do it. Just, just getting a little bit of the background. Had you classical training? Did you... Yes been taught as a pianist or so what was your education in music um i you know i took piano lessons as a kid and then um i started playing and singing stuff i mean we were we were a kind of all playing all singing all dancing family we were like the jewish von traps in toronto you know <laughs> everybody played and sang and, and did stuff my father played um up, you know, stand up bass in a big band to work his way through medical school. And my mother was kind of, uh, Love it. Um, she was a concert pianist who was too shy to play. So we got the concerts, they were all at home. And um, what's wrong with you? You didn't become the doctor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I became the bum. I could have been a bum doctor, but I, you know, I thought this was a better job. So uh, yeah, but you know, from the time I was little, like my grandfather, who was a song and dance man at night, he was a linotype operator during the day, and he, and he did vaudeville at night, That's started great. teaching me song and dance routines when I was two. So, you know, we were doing me and my shadow. I was his shadow and, um, and stuff like that, and, you know, for a few years. And then he died when I was five, but not before he had taken me to see a movie called The Greatest Show on Earth with Charlton Heston. And uh, it was a circus movie. And, and I just, I fell in love. That was it. The switch went on. And I just looked at this and said, that's what I want to do. I didn't know what that was, but I wanted something like that with people applauding and lights and, and colors and all that excitement. And the music, the music was amazing. So that's how I saw it. And so and that was so your, he, in a way, that's sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm saying in a way, that's your, when we have people on and, and their moment is either the Elvis or the Beatles on Ed Sullivan or Bowie on yeah. Star or on Top of the Pops. That was your, that was your Elvis on Ed Sullivan moment. Yes. Yeah, but also, Guy, this is, this is everything you're about to do. Well, because exactly. it, I mean, Alice is Gothic Circus, right? Yeah, pretty much. So that was one of them. There were a few moments. My parents were very into theater and the arts and that sort of stuff. So we would go to the Stratford Festival here in Ontario and Stratford, oh, I Ontario. Yeah, we I was going to say, I thought the Shakespeare no, no. Festival in Stratford. That would have been impressive. Yes, our Stratford Festival <laughs> right, with okay. our Shakespeare. And we had a lot of your actors come over. Okay, right. And, and, do Shakespeare during the summer. It was the it was actually the number one um, theatrical festival in the summer in all of North America. Is it still going? It's been yes, it's been going since the fifties. We must um, go. We must go. You must come. Yes, <laughs> yes. come over. But the theater um, in in which this you know where the main is sort of the main stage was theater in the round, um, almost sort of you know, 240 degrees, and that's it. Just a pallet on the floor. 
think when we speak of horses that you see them, their hoofs, you know, and all this stuff from Henry V. But, you know, that's it. It's your imagination. It's all imagination. There were. I want to ask you something about that that connects in a way because um, you're talking about Henry V there as well, aren't you? When 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 he when he describes him at yes. the beginning. Yes. Oh, uh, for a oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heavens yeah. of invention. Yes. Do you prefer um, walking into a studio with a completely blank page, or do you do you want to hear those songs all finished? Oh first? no 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 no! no. Walking into preference? the studio, we know what we're doing. Walking into a project with a blank page, yes, I prefer that. But then we go through the process of, you know, look, it, this is, in a way, it's no different than making a movie. You have to have a script or you're just flailing and it becomes very time consuming and sometimes incredibly expensive. And don't forget, you know, like I, at, the, at the time that I started, it was the labels that hired me, not the, not the, the acts themselves. Now it's different. So the label would say, this is your budget. This is what we needed delivered. And you do that and you get paid. So I had a mandate and, and had to get things done within a certain period of time. What they didn't dictate was how much time we'd spend on pre-production. For me, that's the key to the, to the making of the record, the pre-production. Because that does to, seem to be a thing. Yeah, uh, uh, sorry, but that does seem to be a thing that you that runs through all of your work is that you always before before you do a thing or once you're doing it is you always try and find the story, what the story mm -hmm. is, and you know a lot of people. Trent Reznor talked about that. Obviously, with the, with the Wall, you actually wrote a script, right? Which yes. which is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I wish I'd known when we went. I've never seen it. Yeah, I, I but yeah, you're right about that because I mean, obviously, you know, there's a sense that you know, Billion Dollar Babies has a has a sense of story about that. Um, and Berlin with Lou Reed was definitely an inspiration. You know, took his inspiration from you to finish a story. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Lou always told stories. One of yeah. the things that I had said to him when we met the first time was that you know, you tell a life in two and a half minutes or three minutes, but there's a lot of blanks, and I kind of want to know, you know. Um, you set these amazing characters up for us, and and uh, and I want to get to know them better. So, and I said when we first got together, I said, for example, you know that couple in that song you wrote called Berlin, because Berlin was on an earlier album in a different form. And uh, I said, you know, I would have really loved to have known what you know, kind of where did this go, you know, and and know more about them. And then we were sitting there and we, and it's like, we both had a V8 moment, like, wait a minute, you wrote that song. We don't have to go like Berlin. Let's take that song and extrapolate it out into a full tale, you know, about these two people. And he loved that because that's, that's where he goes naturally. You know, he sees a person, he sees the situation. He can describe what they're wearing. He can describe the, the smell of the of the place that they're standing in and all that stuff in a song. But, you know, you can only do so much in three minutes. And if you have a whole album to explore, you can get really deep. So yeah, we did. We, we certainly know a lot about that couple by the end of Berlin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I think because you're, you're trying to get the intimacy of Lou, aren't you? You know, you, you, he's almost in the room talking to you. I mean, it's a very different approach to the to production to the one you were doing with Alice. Um, right. Because the um, 
the Berlin story was more like a film, and that's in the sense that there really was, a, you know, there was an arc to the story. There was a beginning. You got to know who they were, and then there was this crisis point, and then you get to the end, and so on. And some of it was very, very confessional. And so for the confessional stuff where he's going like, you know, somebody else would have broken both of her arms, you know, like that. He, he's leaning in and he's telling you, you know what, that bitch, I should have killed her, you know. But um, there was a certain amount of kind of using Lou, I want to put this in the right way, using Lou in his state at that moment. He was going through a divorce. He was. Um, let's say, you know, partying a little bit because we were in London and, uh, and David Bowie and uh, Mick Ronson were around a lot. And uh, they used to take him out after sessions, which is not something that I would normally um, condone, but, you know, it's David Bowie, for God's sake. So, um, so sometimes Lou would come into the studio feeling a little hungover and also emotional because he would have had a phone call, you know, 20 minutes earlier to talk about splitting up and all that stuff. So he'd come in really, you know, almost wanting to cry. And I would put him on a stool and put the microphone this close and um, make the sound in his headphones um, very intimate. So he was really hearing himself. He was hearing every syllable and every mouth noise. And he played it. He used it. He'd wow. slur his words. You know, there was, there was a couple of songs where I said, okay, you know, like the guy is, now the guy's fucked up, don't you think? And, uh, and so let's, let's play it like that. So he, like, literally, you know, you know, he would start to slur his words a little bit. It was great. You had a lot to compete with, though, because of Transformer being such a big commercial yes. hit. Was there a record company on your shoulder going, this is, this, where's, where's Transformer? Oh, well... Uh, the interesting thing is that look, and generally, how do you feel about that pressure? Of, of Well, I, I had exactly the opposite mandate because when Lou came to me, he said he didn't like what happened to him after Transformer. You know, he, he didn't like being suddenly pigeonholed as a pop star. And he just, you know, he had never been in that milieu. He never wanted to be there. And, um, he wanted to get back to being the tortured artist that he really saw himself as, right? Or just the artist with a capital A. And uh, so he wanted to make an anti-transformer. And mm -hmm. that was my mandate from my partner in crime in the project, Lou Reed, who happened to be the star, right? And so it kind of didn't matter what the record company said. And, 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 and at that stage, luckily for us, his ex-manager was now the head of A&R at RCA. So there was a lot of sympathy for what he wanted to, to attempt. And they, they respected him as an artist. They really did. And he just made him a lot of money. And I think, you know, maybe in the boardroom, somebody was saying, okay, right, you know, let's say it's a throwaway, but if it makes him happy, let's give him this one and then we'll do another commercial one sort of thing. Um, and when it came out, there were two completely opposite reactions to it at the same time. There was a cover of Rolling Stone that said Sgt. Pepper of the 70s, which it's not. But uh, then there was another one which called, you know, just called it the worst piece of depressing crap that they'd ever heard. And 
I think the audience wasn't quite ready for it yet. They didn't really get it. It did not do well. But over the years, it just kept selling. And then more and more. And then it became like his classic in a certain way because it was the most completely Lou thing that he had done as a solo project. Mm -hmm. And um, up until that, you know, till that era. Anyway, so go ahead, guys. No, no, I was just just saying it's because you wrote, I wonder if how that was, you know, make it because where it seems so hard as a record and, you know, like it was bleak and challenging for people at the time, but it was written as a show, right? And the thing is, well, it, it was, it was, a, but if you're presenting a show like a film or a play or something, you can be darker than people expect from a record. Yeah, I, you know, it, no, it was a record. I mean, we knew okay. we were making a record. We did want to play it. We wanted to play it live. We could see it. We saw those people. We had, we even had a set in, um, sort of between the two of us. We had designed the the concept, and it was going to be like four. It was going to be a structure that was two two stories with two rooms on the bottom and two rooms on the top, two up, two down. And um, did you tell Roger about this while you were doing the wall? Because it sounds familiar. A little bit, right? Um, And that we were going to play, you know, Jim would be in this room while Caroline would be here. They'd be together there. There'd be somebody there. But there was, it was a two-hander. And, um, and, we, you know, with sound effects and all that sort of stuff. And we saw it that way. We really wanted to take it out like that. But the reaction commercially was so sort of uh, tepid that, um, you know, there wasn't the there wasn't the momentum to be able to um, force something like that into existence. Just go back to meeting Alice. Well, I just wanted to have to say one last thing working. on Berlin before we do that. Yeah, no, go no, on, no, sorry, which is because I saw the show when it, it, of course, Lou finally got to do it. When we finally got to do it. Yeah. But it's funny what you say about I the set because I think, was it Julian Schnabel who designed the set? And it was quite a big deal because I remember going to the Hammersmith Apollo wow. and the set looks great. And there's a sofa upside down and there's various bits and there's all these wires everywhere and you're thinking, this is going to be amazing. I wonder what it's going to do. Because it's like when you go to a Floyd show and there's always wise to go, wow, shit's going to happen. But nothing happens. Nothing happens. <laughs> <With> the... <laughs> it's just an Look, upside down sofa with a wire the, coming uh... off it. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So Julian Schnabel, who is a very famous fine artist and... Uh, director. And director. That's yeah. You're absolutely right. Film, film director and, uh, and uh, exceptional wearer of pajamas at the most inappropriate times. Um, <laughs> And man of a huge ego. I think we all know that. Do you think? So <laughs> Julian, uh, one night, uh, Lou and I were having dinner at Wolsey in New York in the, in the village, just, just south of his apartment. And, um, and Julian came in and saw us sitting there. And he came over to the table. He got on his knees. And he, and he just said, please, please let's do Berlin live. And he said, you don't understand. Berlin is the reason I'm a painter. That's what started me out and all this stuff. And, and he was, he actually lit the spark, right? We didn't do it right away, right after that, but, but we talked about it. Like after he left and sat down with his friends, and then Lou and I were left alone. I was like, you know, maybe, maybe it's time now, you know, it's been so long. 
And he and Lou said, yeah, maybe it is. And then it went another year or two before um, we got a call from um, from St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn, which is a, you know, sort of an avant-garde theater, very forward thinking, very um, uh, experimental and um, off, off Broadway, off, off, off. And but but highly respected. And um, the artistic director of St. Anne's is very highly respected within the, the New York arts community. And she called somebody, Lou's management, I guess, and said, you know, we would really like to do Berlin Live, if you don't mind. Now, maybe Schnabel planted the seed. I don't know. But they called. And then that's when it started to happen. So, in fact, Schnabel came up to Toronto. And I happened to be in Toronto at the same time. He was doing something at the uh, Art Gallery of Ontario and doing a talk. So we met at the hotel, we talked about the show and sort of what it could be. And then, um, and then the ball started to roll. It was a little slow at, at first, but then it started to take off. The fact is, we didn't create a show show. We just played the record. Can we do Alice now? Can we, can we think about it? And I guess it, no. was, it was your no. first... No, I'm kidding. Oh, God, Go ahead. Jesus. Whatever you want to do with anything you'd like. <laughs> I mean, love it to de- love it to death. So in a way, you know, that conversation we were having earlier about West Coast versus East Coast, in a way, Alice kind of did the runner, didn't he? Or he got kicked out of the West Coast because he was Frank Zappa's boy d- down down in Laurel Canyon, uh, those first two albums, and then made it to Detroit and sort of all changed when he met you, really. Well, it all, yes, I think it all changed when he when he found Detroit. That that was the beginning of the change. As um, Shep and Alice both tell in their books, that they couldn't get arrested in Los Angeles, literally. Yeah. So, I mean, they were trying. <laughs> Alice was outrageous and they was known for being outrageous and clearing rooms, but they were trying to get more and more notice. They were trying to get some real press. They were trying to get the papers to cover the, you know, television to do something. So Shep came up with a great idea. He said, we're going to dress you in, in see-through plastic costumes on stage, you'll be naked underneath. You go on stage, I'm gonna call the police and say my underage kid is in the club and it's it's lewd and it's terrible and they need to go down and do something. And so they did and he did. The Keystone cops arrived, right? By the time the Keystone (laughs) cops had arrived, the condensation inside a plastic suit, which is natural anyway, had fogged them up completely. There was nothing to see. So they couldn't (laughs) even get arrested. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Magnificent. Yeah. It's a great story. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Bob, I'm going to steer your brain back into uh, I'm 18, to. oh, okay. right? Because I'm yes. 18... Yeah. broke alice and it's still you know it's it's one of his great pieces he, st he still does it how do you get away? i love that would he it's like well, singing about before know, i get old isn't it uh, my generation yeah 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 you know i mean it, you know the great thing about the, the alice cooper songs is that they are they're all little pieces of theater too so it's almost as though he's doing his you know he's doing a show like like many, you know, and Gary, you you would know this better than any of us, you know, like you go and you do a show and you play it every night for some period of time on stage. And every night you find a little something different. You find, you know, there's something in it that you notice or something in it that you do slightly differently that may, that keeps it alive for you and keeps it interesting. In his case, you know, every night it's a different audience. And every night the audience reacts in a slightly different way. And, and that fuels him. Like he loves, you know, Alice is a true showman, obviously, and loves the applause and loves the interchange with the audience. And so he's been playing a lot of these songs for 50 years, longer. I mean, I'm 18. They already had that when I went to see them at Max's Kansas City on September 8th in 1970. They had already been playing it for a year. I thought it was I'm edgy when I when I saw the show because I'm edgy and I don't know what I want. I'm edgy and I, you know, I'm going, I'm edgy. Ooh, that's hip. So I you know I told I told them I thought that would be a big song. I love that I'm edgy song. And they look at each other like, what? But, oh, I'm 18. Yes. Even better. And, and of course, it went on to be that was the song that John Lydon sang in along to the jukebox in uh, Malcolm Vivian's shop that got him the gig with the Sex Pistols. So it's that's right. Bookends the seventies. <laughs> yeah, it does, and it's a good song. But where did you? Where, 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 yeah, I mean, but that album and, and Killer, you know, I mean, they they are more just a they're rock straight up glam rock and roll. But then something begins to happen with him, with School's Out, I guess. And of course, I, you know, School's Out, what a, what a record. I mean, I remember that, you know, and that album cover. Christ, Guy, guy did you have that of album cover I had with that the album, panties but I remember, Yeah, inside. yeah, it was not. But I was still at primary school, but I remember it was I those, hit those records that made me first aware of the idea of record production, you know, because they, they yes. sounded magnificent, which, I mean, going on to, I mean, Welcome to My Nightmare was the one that, that's when you suddenly think, oh my God, what is going on here? Just in terms of sound, but guy, can I say I hid those? I hid those. You're going to show them to us now, aren't you? You're going to show them to us now, aren't you? No, I don't have them with me. I don't. <laughs> He's wearing they them. They stopped putting them on the yeah. cover because they were a fire hazard. They were a, they fire, were a hazard. fire hazard. They were so hot. That was true. It is. They they were a fire hazard and uh, <laughs> and technically. Basically, for people who don't know, times, it was a school simpler times. Simpler times. You could give away the school, panties. They could the be a fire desk. hazard. You, I mean, there was, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and when you lifted up the desk, inside was was the record with with panties wrapped, paper yeah. panties wrapped around. Yeah, even the word makes me feel odd. <laughs> it's okay, but I'll tell you what it does. The word panties and paper panties in particular is it, it points out that you need a pop filter. <laughs> Just saying. I do. Thank, 
Thank you, producer. Have you, you done, have you oh, done that before? Have you done that before, Bobby? Is that a thing? Because that, that was that was way too smooth. Just came up. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's why you get the bit. But, but I suppose yeah, de- developing developing Alice's theatrical sound with those boys was it? There was a moment when you said, you know what, we don't need to just make all this music with with you with the band. We can start orchestrating this. We can add stuff. Well, use other that, musicians. Well, you know. Let's back up a little bit because there was theatricality in there was Black Juju on Love It to Death, which was which was a remarkable piece for it was a, a little bit like um, Walk on Gilded Splinters, you know, Dr. John. It was creepy and weird, and you know, and, and there were, he stopped and he yelled and he did all kinds of strange things, and um, so that was a sort of foray into it. And then, and, and of course, dead babies later, you know, um, had a, a great deal of theater, but, I, but on killer, you know, we had, uh, the whole long, you know, halo of flies, long, uh, the- theatrical piece there, you know, so we were starting to experiment. Then we get to schools out. The interesting thing about schools out was we had changed studios up until schools out. I was Jack Jr. I was working in Jack's favorite studio with Jack's favorite engineer in Jack's way with Jack's kind of sound, sort of. I was, you know, I mean, only Jack was Jack, but I, but I had learned drum sounds from Jack Richardson. I was using the mics he preferred and all that sort of stuff. Then I get to New York at the record plant, which is this incredible, um, crucible of creativity just a bunch of wacko young men playing with toys you know suddenly all this new technology and there were a few of them that were inventing the technology at the time so um we get there and suddenly whoa the sounds are different you can do all kinds of things that i couldn't do at rca mid-america studios in chicago at number one north wacker um but uh also there were people on the staff at the record plant who played instruments so i could like like me right so suddenly i could add a piano me and i could add a dulcimer and that would be paul prestipino and he would come in and play he was one of the maintenance guys but he played you know a great sort of mandolin dulcimer whatever it was that we had him do Uh, also in new york you could you could rent anything so I could rent a Calliope, which, which I used on the Kiss, you know, album for Flame and Youth. Do, 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 you know, <laughs> they died. But I was like, wait, you wait. People will talk about this forever. So Kiss. This is so Kiss. Yeah, yeah, also, no, it wasn't. Yeah. I've also, I've just learned how to say that. Calliope. <laughs> yes. You thought it was a Calliope. Calliope. I, never, well, I was never quite sure. You, you only ever see it well, written down. You're the first person I've ever even, to say I it always, out loud. I always thought I always yeah, thought the yeah. girl's name was Pennylope. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Kiss. I mean, they, you know, we had Paul on the show. He's, they, he's, they, he seems like a sweetheart. He, but, but the other guy. Uh, well, how this was is it? where the classic isn't, isn't this your, your classic line of shouting, who knew at a record company meeting? Wasn't that to do with Beth? Beth. There's a long story to Beth and how that happened. Um, is it too long? The, is it too boring for you? Or? The condensed version is that um, it was important that Peter Chris have a song on the album. This is something that he had written with a friend of his, Stan Pendridge, earlier. 
and he brought it in. It was a little more, it, it was sort of cock and balls, you know, kind of um, arrogant guy saying, basically, screw you, you know, I'm not coming home. Me and the boys are more important and all that stuff. And it was a little bit bouncy. And uh, so I said, can I take it home and play with it a little bit? And I, I went back to my apartment in uh, on 52nd Street and I sat at my piano and I don't know where it came from, but bling, blah, da, do, 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 just came out. So now I started to play that and then I started to sing the song and I thought, this is, you know, this is actually a very sad song that, uh, you know, our, why isn't he coming home? And he knows he's breaking her heart. Why? Why? What's going on? And the fact is that his house no longer feels like a home and, and he just can't. So it's really his heart that's broken, her heart that's broken. It's a sad story of, of the breakdown of a relationship. And, um, you know, and he ends it by saying, you know, Beth, I hear you calling and I hope you'll be all right. But me and the boys will be playing all night. I'm not coming home is basically what he's saying mm -hmm. and and so it, so we made it into a, a ballad a really kind of sensitive sad ballad and peter just happens to have this kind of that smoky voice that lent itself to the song perfectly in that form yeah yeah so we did it like that and the, the minute we did it like i knew i just knew that that was a hit but I didn't, but the rest of the band didn't feel like it was representative of Kiss. And it wasn't, you know, not at the time, wasn't representative of Kiss um, as people knew them, but it was representative of the Kiss of Destroyer. Because the, the, the purpose of Destroyer, from my point of view, was to take them from being um, a cock and balls, rock band that appeals to 15 year old pimply cartoon. boys and no one and no one else well they they would never not going to be cartoonish yeah, as yeah. long as they were all dressed up like that but um you know when we first met i said to them you know there's a there's a famous movie in the 50s called the wild one with um marlon brando, uh, marlon brando and lee marvin they were two warring uh, motorcycle clubs mm -hmm. bad guys all bad guys the thing is that Lee Marvin was was a monochromatic, dressed in black, bad, bad, bad guy, and you just hate. Was it one a gang called the Beatles? Was I ever got that right? It was, it was one gang, one of the mm. gangs. Well, I don't, had a name of a band. Oh, don't that's worry. interesting. I don't remember that. Don't but remember. but Lee Marvin was just nasty. Whereas Marlon Brando, there was something about him that was that was a little vulnerable, a little more humane. And the girl, the the pretty daughter of somebody important, who was, you know, tightly wound, good Christian, lovely girl, you know, virgin, whatever. She saw something in Johnny, Marlon Brando's character, that she fell in love with. And what she are you rebelling she, against? What do you got? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, rock and roll line. That's it. So I said to them. Right now you're Lee Marvin, and and that's a glass ceiling. We'll never we'll never go wide with that. It'll just be the 15 year old boys that go. Oh, that's cool. But um, <laughs> what what we want is we want to expand to where every girl in America looks at you guys and goes, I can fix that. <laughs> I love him, and I'm going to fix him because that's what girls do. They look at people like you, Gary. And you, Guy, 
<laughs> and they say, I love him. I can fix that. <laughs> well, that, was a, a, that was a very Chris nervous Martin laugh said, there. You know? <laughs> no, that's why Chris Martin you know? got it all wrong. He said, I can fix you. That album was both the macho sort of, you know, straight up sexual side of them. It was also a little bit of mystery and it was a lot of vulnerability that people didn't pick up on at the very first, but it was in there. And do you love me and great expectations, even though it was right. great expectations was full of bravado. And then they go and call it destroyer <laughs> and ruin it all. <laughs> Sorry, Gary. What Come were you on. saying? How did you two guys, how did you two guys meet? Oh, I'll tell you, well, I first met Bob when um, you came to, well, I wanted to do Peter Gabriel, but we'll do that afterwards. I, f I first met you when you were brought to, and I was in a totally overwhelmed state at the time, when we were rehearsing that Pink Floyd tour in Toronto Airport, and we were in trouble, right? And it was like two weeks before the first show, and you were brought in to, to sort of fix the show. Right. David called me. Um, David is fantastic, and I love him. Um, we and we've, we remained, we've, we've remained close friends through... Yeah. You know, from the time that I first met him on on the wall and stuff, um, and we we worked on a couple of other things. We worked on his solo album, and we worked on on obviously the two post Roger um, records. And to a certain extent, I was kind of on the last endless rhythm. yeah, and the last. Yeah, you played bass uh, on it, you bastard. Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> what? Well, what? I used to play bass on the Division Bell sessions quite a lot when I wasn't when they couldn't be bothered to get me in. You know, in in several of these instances, he would start out trying to do it alone, and then he would get to a point, and he would phone me and say, um, "Do you know? Do you think you could come in and uh, I might, you know, I might need a little bit of help here." You know, that was the thing on the solo record, and then um, and then for when by the time we got to Momentary Lapse of Reason tour, the call was, "I never." Uh, I never failed to try to do it on my own, and I rarely fail to notice that I can't. I need some help. So would you please come and work on this thing? It was so sweet. It was just the sweetest thing, and he was like sort it of, you know, self. I was so glad you're there. But what I, well, what I would say, because like in David's defense, David, I mean, he's more than capable as a band leader, and that absolutely he loves that. But it's the show. Right, you, the show you know, the, the, exactly. It's it's to, you know. Reality is, is you can't be on stage and watching the stage at the same time. You, you can't. can't. Yeah, no. it's impossible. But plus, they so hadn't having, played together for years. Nick was unsure of himself. Rick was very much still in his shell. You had all these new kids. You know, it was. Yeah, well, there was all of that too. But that's yeah. just, that's the kind of stuff that I think David could have could have handled on his own, and he did a he did a pretty good job getting us getting it up to that point but but it wasn't gelling and the flow of the show was not there i didn't like the when i came in and watched it i didn't like the lighting i didn't like you know i just thought that we you know it was just it was everything all the time but does it begin with the set list and the structure like yes you said of course, of course. you know there's there has to be an arc to the experience right you have to start off with a bang you have to take keep people going and keep them up and moving and then there's an appropriate point at which to bring it down if you wish and then you can start introducing all kinds of other things but it was when to do it that was important well there are two things you said in those rehearsals by the way which i'm going to say which have stayed with me for the rest of my whole life one was at one point you were on stage being very brilliant shouting very much like a theater director 
Dunning everyone. You said, if you're lost, if you don't know what's going on, if you're stuck in the song, look at Guy. He always knows what's going on. It's like, what? Which is just completely untrue. Uh, B, the most terrifying thing I ever heard. The other thing you said, which is, and it's a, a phrase that I still use to this day, which was that, because Nick was a bit unsure of himself and concerning himself a lot with the logistics of the show and stuff. And also, I think perhaps slightly intimidated by Gary, as, as was I. Not me, no, by not the way. you, Gary Wallace, the, the very, very brilliant, you know, proper top-notch session percussion drummer. And, um, and, and it was literally, we're getting right near the end and, and, and Nick still wasn't in his groove. And you said to me, Nick, you said, don't worry, come the hour, the curtain goes up and you will see Nick Mason, boy drummer. And we did and have ever since. And I always love it. And I always think wow. of Nick as Nick Mason, boy drummer because of that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was my, my, that was my nickname for him, Nicky. But I, I always see a show, Bob, as, as, as generally the way to, to the, what the audience want from a show is this. You arrive, the band come on stage, and they are greater human beings. They are coming deus ex machina from the sky, and you want to look up and see this power, this energy. Some, and then during the show, what happens is you join them, and you, you, you become one. They come down, you go up, you know, but there's a leveling out of in, within the auditorium. That's very poetic. I like it. Great. You don't we'll keep it. Agree. But <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Love it. Can't use it. Save it for your solo album. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk to you because a, this, this is a side uh, project I've got going. Uh, but Peter Gabriel, right? Because when you work with him, because because Bob Watton, I mean, that's one of the most important records of my life. That, that's. But so here's a guy who's come out of Genesis, who was all about total theatricality. But where was he when you? Because none of us knew what to expect from a Peter Gabriel record. Where was he when he came to work with you? And it's like, was he wanting more of of his theatricality or was he trying to get away from that? Or Good question. Um, it is a good question. I, my recollection, um, my recollection is that um, he was coming out of Genesis. He was very nervous mm. about going out on his own. But, you know, very much like, like, this is Peter's nature. Peter is driven, even though he looks like the calmest and sort of most laid back guy you've ever met. He, there is an inner fire that is lit all the time and that pushes him along a route, whether he likes it or not. And, um, and he's driven by a notion. He gets a, he gets a notion in his head and he cannot let go of it. So regardless of the fact that it may frighten him to death. So, you know, the idea of leaving, like, how do you leave a band like Genesis? They're just breaking. They're just like becoming the most important prog band in the world at the time. And people are recognizing him for the brilliant talent that he is. Something in him said, I'm not getting, uh, you know, my true voice is not being heard and I need to go. So he went. Even before, it's like he leapt over the cliff without knowing what was on the other side. I wish you'd produced The Lamb Lies Down on oh, Broadway. Yeah, Could yeah, you imagine yeah. that, though? I mean, it's made for you. Anyway, moving on. Um, so, you know, when, when I got called, um, I guess I was already known for a certain level of theatricality. And, uh, and also, I think the word had traveled that I was kind of, um, I don't know, you know, like camp counselor, you know, I, I was a good guy for wrangling um, 
artists who may have been confused or or who had opposing views and stuff like that. I was good at sort of bringing everybody together and, and defining a direction. And and so that's why they called me because they said, you know, he really needs help. He needs somebody. But we were the same age. I'm actually a year younger than him. And um, and so when we got together, we bonded like like brothers. Right. I didn't I didn't come at him as as a you know fat controller i came at him to quote another artist <laughs> yeah. i came at him as uh, as as a peer and a contemporary but somebody who really cared about him which i did like from the first time i met the guy i just fell in love with him and i really felt like it was my job to advocate for him to try and you know make his dreams come true and try and uh, create something with and for him that would be very successful and would justify this move that he had made that people were questioning all over the place so um so you know that was it we got together like that he was a little unsure and we we talked a lot about what the show would be before we made the album which is really interesting because that's what he's about because you worked him hard, right? There's some, there's some. I've, I've heard you talk about this on other things about like strapping him between pillars and stuff. Not between two, two a pillar. Two a pillar. Oh, I thought it was two pillars. I thought it was the full. No, one <laughs> one pillar. There were two pillars, like but I strapped him to this one. Um, <laughs> okay. Look, it was a the, joke. The second one was a threat if he didn't get it right. Yeah, it was a joke. I said, you know, you get three more tries, and if you don't get it, you're going up the pillar. Because we were big on gaffer tape in those days. We did, we did amazing creative things with gaffer tape. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, he didn't get it. And Brian Christian, the engineer, is a big man from Southside Chicago, massive arms, big muscles and stuff. And I go, let's put him up the pillar. So they, Brian lifted him in the air. And uh, Jim Frank, who was the engineer from the studio, came over and got a ladder and gaffer taped him under his armpits so he was stuck to the pillar and then brian let him go and he was dangling like this you know with his arms flopping and i said mike him so and then we go we gave we put headphones on him and stuck a mic in front of him and we ran the thing and you know the chorus for modern love is oh the pain modern love can be a strain well i believe me he got it on the next take so that was that and and he was a great sport about it he was you know his arms and legs were flailing as he was singing and it, and it became like it was as theatrical as the song called for yeah. And um, and and he laughed and, and we laughed. It was terrific. I'll tell you one other thing about Gaffer this, Tape yeah, and Peter Gabriel. Yeah. So we we saw that he and Gaffer Tape were you know they they seemed to get along very well. So one day, as you do, we taped him to a to a chair with with rollers on it, and we wheeled him out to the street and left him there. And then we went back to the studio and we all laughed. Ha ha ha. He's, you know, let's see how he gets back in. And so and he didn't come back. And then, and then we got really nervous. And so we went out to look for him. He was rolling down the street as he was going, asking people directions. Excuse me. Which way to the, you know, he's gaffer taped to a chair. Oh Cars God. are going by and stopping. Are you okay? So, yes, no problem. Can you tell me where the pub is, please? You know, and he's rolling down the, the road. He was fantastic. A Can I offer up that image of Peter tied to the, to the pillar? 
I mean, that is that is Odysseus facing the sirens, isn't it? I mean, that's fantastic. Stuff. In a way, yes. The opposite with him singing instead of there. But um, you put together an incredible band. I mean, this was yeah. like the real sort of art house London um, British scene. You know, I mean, Eno's not on it, of course, but Fripp's on it, and and Tony Levin and Larry Fast, of course. I mean, this is a, this is this is almost the future of where music's going. I was saying to Guy earlier. It almost sounds yeah, like it's, it's, the it's sound of 80s production. Record, yeah. Almost. In yeah. 77. But those were New Yorkers. Yeah. He got, I, he got, he said, could I please have a Brit? And I said, yeah, sure, you get one. And, and he, chose, <laughs> he chose Fripp, who went on to undermine me uh, towards the end of the project. And uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay, you know. Uh, it's certainly not Fripp the first time it's ever reasons. happened. But, you know, during the, you know, so Fripp, these Fripp's were my... Gonna Fripp. <laughs> These were my guys and um, and people that I had used on many sessions for other people before. So I knew Tony Levin. I, I had Tony Levin played on Berlin. That's right, yeah. On the kids. Um, and uh, maybe one other, I can't remember. But, you know. Was this the first time Tony and Fripp had played together? Did yes, you? that's where they yeah. met. So you brought them together? Yeah. But, and I yes. love, and of course, what I love is that Tony's still there and are very much part of the package which is why i'm really pleased that he ended up not doing the pink floyd gig and i did because he never would have been able to be really associated you know he always would have been he's always because he's the guy who does everything he does the stick man he does crimson there's always wonderful things but he's you know and he's tony and i adore tony i know tony i love him to bits he's my hero but he's he's that guy and he, but it's, it's that thing he has with peter is so lovely and Oh, totally. You know Peter, I mean? Peter fell in love with him. And during the making of the record, you know, Tony, this is really cool because we did pre-production, um, which was amazing. And one day when you have more time, I'll tell you the story of pre-production with that, with uh, Peter Gabriel. Love that. Um, but, um, you know, so we got to Toronto to the studio, um, the, the soundstage, which was Nimbus 9 studio. And we, the band got together. This was the first time everybody came in from their various places. And um, then we would all sit in Jack's office. Jack, Jack wasn't around at the time. I think he was doing the Guess Who. So we'd sit in Jack's office. He had an upright piano. Peter would play the piano. And some of these changes are really complicated. And some of the time changes and things like that on these songs. And the guys would be writing feverishly. Could, could you go back? Could you go back? You know, he first he'd play it so they could hear it. And then let's go back to the beginning and let's walk through it so we all understand the structure. He'd play it once and Tony would read a book. <laughs> That's it. He had it. He already had it. And, and everybody else is like, oh, could I hear that, you know, that chorus? Like one more time, like Tony had it. And, and at first it was a joke. It was like, are, are you listening? And, um, uh, and, and then, you know, we'd get into the studio and Tony would have it. I mean, he would play it like he was ready all the time. And then he became kind of a, a little bit of a leader, too. So he would help people to understand some of these passages. And then when we got to Excuse Me, which... Um, Tony loves a bit of barbershop, doesn't he? So Tony was in a barbershop yeah. quartet. And I don't remember who came up with the idea, What you know, but... One of us said, it would be great if this was a barbershop quartet. And Tony goes, um, and he arranged it and the band members sang it. 
I didn't go out and get ringers. It was the guys who played the instruments on the record that sang the parts in the barbershop quartet. It was amazing. And we would practice outside of the studio in the courtyard. People would come out of their offices, you know, just listening because it was so crazy. And and on our on our closing dinner, I hosted a dinner for everybody, a closing dinner, and I gave everybody a <laughs> gift because it was such an amazing experience. And they had all given of themselves beyond anything that one could have expected. And so um, then um, we stood up and did excuse me for the restaurant. And because uh, I'd give, well, first of all, I gave Tony a tuba. That was that was his gift because he could play the tuba and he played the tuba. Of course he could. Yeah. So he played and I go three, four, you know, me and they, they all stood up and they did their parts and the restaurant erupted into applause. I said, we're here every Tuesday and Thursday, two shows, no waiting, you know, like, and so, uh, but we ended up having the greatest time that night and everybody, everybody sort of joined in the celebration. As a little, little, Guy just a tiny little side though, sorry, Gary, is that, you know, that Tony actually wrote, wrote a full barbershop piece uh, where he just names every drummer he's ever, ever worked with. That's, That's fantastic. a brilliant thing. <laughs> Guy teased me earlier because we were obviously mentioning the wall and he said that he felt that comfortably That's numb well, the fact really that, that, that wouldn't. Be, it's because of you that comfortably numb exists, which counts as a service to humanity, I would say. That's very true. Cool. How true is that, Bob? It's true. Um, it's true because, uh, we need the, something in D it's that right. I mean, that's the script to which you referred. The script was, yeah. I treated it like a movie, um, an eyelid movie. This was not the script for the ultimate film. This was a different thing, but it was a, you know, as if you were watching a movie in your mind and this was the soundtrack to it. So I described sound effects and so on and what the action was, you know, that this was a baby cries and we're talking about this and I put in the lyrics from the songs that we had up until that point. There were a number of empty spots, right? And when we got to the place where Comfortably Numb needed to be, we the story we had to tell, this was the breakdown, the ultimate breakdown. And this is where Pink goes into the hole. So I needed a song indeed, and it needed to be about the breakdown. Uh, because you wanted that, you wanted that D chord to hit right at that moment after the proceedings. Correct. Started. I mean, part of the, you know, that listen, part of, part of... The, wa the wall is not short of songs in D, by the way. <laughs> no, but we already had a bunch. But, yeah. but part of good sequencing is to make sure that the keys yeah. between songs change dramatically or don't yeah. change because you don't want them to. Yeah. So, yes, we had a lot of songs in D. But um, that one needed to be in D to start off. And actually, it starts off in B minor. So... Right. Um, but it's relative, yeah. it's the relative minor and it worked great. I mean, the intro, as soon as it starts happening, you're, you're in, you're captivated. But anyway, so I said, I need a song in D and David started to play that high string figure. And he had a song. I can't, can't even remember what the song was at the time, but the high string. It was, it was yeah, it was a leftover from hit that he started for his solo album. Correct. His first song. Correct. It was just something he had in his back pocket. And and what is that part of the song? There is no then a dun a dee dee. That, it's that bridge. part. That's the chorus, yes. The chorus of the song. And and I believe yeah. that that melody existed. Da 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 and, and he had the that beautiful high string part. And the minute I heard it, I'm like, yes, that's 
That's our Hitler. No, that's, that's our song. <laughs> yes. Hey, does <laughs> name the reference? The producers, the producers. absolutely. <laughs> I, thought, I thought we had. I thought we had Kanye on the show for a second. Oh my! Oh, yeah, Sorry, we'll get no, no, we'll get to that, that before we finish. But uh, okay. But yes, Corey, comfortably done. Corey. No, so that was it. You know, we heard that, and then and then I threw it to Roger to say, you know, we we we're we're going to need some lyrics here and and uh, would you do it he was resistant at first because he did he wasn't really welcoming of other people's material to start off with but as it as well, it that grew wasn't, yeah that wasn't going to happen at all was it that was no the, the brief was it was no one else no was that that was that was not going to happen but i insisted on certain songs you know run like hell and things like that they were just we yeah, needed I mean, them geez, thank god you did <laughs> But did, did Roger did Roger write the verse? He did, as we know it. No, no, the yeah. lyrics, not the music. Um, I don't know who came up with the B minor progression. Uh, honestly, I don't remember whether that was part of what um, oh, David okay. had already written or whether that was something that Roger appended to the David part. Doesn't matter. But I, it ends I'm up sure being. I, I think I've heard a demo. Yeah, I mean, not that it matters. Okay, I would love to hear that. But I. I I mean, David's very humble about the solo, and he says, "Look, you know, I'm I'm playing I'm playing a, a a blues solo over some great chord sequences, which make the solo sound even better." But I'm sure that I mean, obviously, that's extraordinarily humble. Come on! But yeah. I just want you to tell us, as a witness, I mean, there are two solos on that. The one, the first one's very, very melodic. Well, everyone's really always super impressed by the last one, quite rightly. And I just wondered what you remember. Well, okay, so uh, again, here, fog of time. <clears throat> I remember being um, in the room, <clears throat> excuse me, when he played that for the first time on our guide track, because we made guide tracks where um, it's a long story. But um, well, no, we, there's a very brilliant thing you did, which, I, which was all the bass and drums were recorded on 16 track. And Correct. then put onto and, put onto two tracks of a twenty-four track tape. The sixteen tracks were then put away. Put so away. The bass and drums had never been played again until you mixed it. So it until we started fresh to mix oxide. it. Yeah. The, correct. Which so that so we weren't movie. polishing the tape and we weren't rubbing away all the yeah. the transients and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, we used to record like that in the in in the eighties and the I think, but obviously it was a Bob Ezrin <laughs> idea. That we, uh, yeah, we all we all stole. Well, I, I don't know whether it was my idea, but it was something that I that I learned on Peter Gabriel, as a matter of fact. And <clears throat> excuse me, and it was something that I was very aware of because as we were overdubbing on all these records, they were starting to get softer sounding, and I didn't understand why. And then I I I studied the physics of it a little bit, and it, and it became really apparent to me what was happening that every time you you so every time you went through that process of, of, of taking sound, turning it into an electrical impulse, putting it in through this magnet, essentially, that sticks it on tape, and then taking it back off that thing, when it goes through the magnet, there's a little bit of a delay, a tiny, tiny bit of a delay on whatever comes first. And in sound, what comes first is the sharp stuff. So it takes the transient, like the ping of a cymbal or the smack of a snare, takes that transient and 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 just micro, you know, infinitesimally moves it slightly back. And the more you keep doing it, the more you keep copying these things, the more the transient moves back. So I started to learn to do stuff backwards. In other words, if I was going to bounce something down or copy it, 
I would turn the tape over because in the same way, now it's going backwards, that delay was actually pushing the transient back forward. So uh, anyway, and then, and then it became clear that the best thing to do would be to have, you know, separate machines and just keep like, keep the rhythm section pristine and everything else, the overdubs would be on, on different machines. It's a long story. And we, and we broke a lot of ground uh, technically on that record. And, um, and I scared them to death with some of that because they didn't believe it was going to work, you know, and when it finally did, they were like, wow, because it sounded so good. I'll tell you, comfortably numb. we were down to the last overdub on the 24 track we had, which had all the overdubs on it. We had mixed down the orchestra, we had mixed down this other stuff, put it on a 24 on 24 tracks. And there was yeah. One thing I wanted to add, and I don't remember what it was, whether it was a tambourine or something, and the only track that was not being used was the now mono bounce of bass and drums that we were playing to. And I said, erase it. And everybody's like, no! You know, like, oh my God, bass and drums, no! I said, it's okay, we got it. You know, erase it. And, and so we did, and it was like heart attack time. And then when this when the machines actually did sync up, it was amazing. It was like it was glorious to hear. But everybody was wow. everybody was relieved, you know. Wow. So anyway, there you but go. that solo is that solo is famously first take, isn't it? I mean, what was well, the, that solo is, that take. solo is according to in the in the history according to Ezra uh, first take, <clears throat> and David remembers it the same way. However, um, I've been chastised by uh, the engineer James Guthrie on the gig who uh, is very cross with me because apparently I'm stealing his thunder and um, and actually it was done over several takes in France while I was in uh, Chateau Mirabel with Roger and and he was the one that recorded it it doesn't matter what matters is it's the best guitar solo I've ever heard ever Ever. I, I, I'm with that. Listen, I've, stood, I've stood next to him, what, four, five hundred times now. And it's how many, still... how many great guitar solos can you sing? Yeah. I mean, how, you know, and you can sing this one. Well, that's the thing is about David is, is, is yeah. his melodic ear yeah. is always. It's, it's, uh, well, the other one, of course, just... is, yeah. The other one is Brick, which of course, that was, but that was a first hit, wasn't it? And yeah. That's what the 59 Les Paul in straight into the desk. And yeah. there were no chords under it. Right? Is that true? No, there were no chords, and because um, it's why it's got this fabulous wrong note in it. In the end, yeah, towards the end. Word yeah, <laughs> which I think is brilliant. So it is uh, brilliant. Of course, it's brilliant. So we no, we added Rick afterwards. It's not that there were no chords. I think we were just pedaling on the one, and yeah. uh, and then Rick started to play that progression on the ending. So uh, are those Rick's chords? Yeah, I think yeah. That's my recollection of it. Yes. Listen, there were so many, you know how many bits and pieces there were to that yeah, record <laughs> and, and how many personalities we had to manage and how many, and the record company going crazy and all that stuff. And, you know, and forgive me, James Guthrie, but take a fucking chill pill, you know, like there was a lot going on. And if I don't get it quite right, sorry, you know, I'm not killing anybody. Um, but I, you know, my, um, you know, my recollection was that, that uh, another brick in the wall was a first take and that we had sort of lied to him. So we're just getting levels, 
Um, I don't know if anybody else remembers it differently, and I don't frankly care. With most guitarists, they come in and there's some time getting a sound, and there's some time working on a part, and then you work on the sound a bit, and then you work on the part. With David, it's just the sound. And you spend all day, well, go, no, that amp into that amp, then going into that and going, no, that's not it. Okay, take it back from that amp, into that amp, through it to that, to, no, that's not it. Take it out of that, put that compressor in, put it in that, no, that's not it. And this goes on all day. But then it's like, okay, that's the sound. Roll tape, done. Done, I know. The, the execution is nothing. It's all the sound. Which is interesting yeah. you say that because the, the solo on, on Brick is 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 literally going into, into the that, desk, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's DI'd. I mean, was that your idea? Just Or is it compressed probably on the desk, isn't it? Um, apparently we went into it, yes. We went into a compressor, of course, you know, but um, yeah, because I had done a, a similar thing with um, Alice Cooper and with Kiss both um and i really like the sound of it so that's what i was going for it's great um i you know on on gibson's pardon on gibson's as well because they play humbuckers. yes well i like it on gibson's i mean i i did it on a uh on a strat as well and it sounded really cool i mean it can just sometimes it can be really really cool and um that's what i wanted to hear there i just thought that it matched the song like that whole song was a was a battle because you know at first, um, the band didn't, I mean, they gave me a verse and a chorus and then they left. And that was it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. This could be a hit, you know? And Roger says, we don't do singles. All right, then. Yeah, so no, is they left, I, I copied it backwards, as we were discussing, and, um, and just edited. It's exactly the same band part the first verse and the second verse with a fill that i that i found of uh of nicks that seemed to match and um oh what from somewhere else yeah i mean well from it was from it was from new working on the song but i i think okay, maybe okay, it wasn't okay. even a fill it may have been a part from the verse that i just picked up and isolated and made a fill out of but whatever you know we we cut it in so now we had two verses except they had they said exactly the same thing they had exactly the same melody and um and roger absolutely refused to write a second verse which i am so happy he did because what could be better than that kid's choir yeah, on yeah. the second half yeah. right and um mm -hmm. and that choir you know success has green, many fathers so that choir was thought of yeah. by you know that was thought up by roger by Nick Griffiths, by James Guthrie, by me, by everybody and his kid brother. Um, you know, my recollection- you, you're the guy with the history of it. I mean, it schools out. I know. I, my my recollection Sorry. of it was that, you know, when in doubt, get kids is, is, my, okay. is sort of my mantra, you know. Hang on. Be hang very on. careful where you say that these days. Yeah. <laughs> that was Islington Green School on the wall. It, uh, and my local school, actually, my, the, the nearest school to me growing up, although I never went there, had a bit of a reputation, Islington Green, for fighters. Um, but which, where, where did you, what kids did you use on Schools Out? They were, um, they were central casting kids from New York. These were professional kids who came with their, their moms and... Um, uh, yeah. They'd been on Basketball Jones or something, had they, before? I don't really know what they'd been on before, but they were all dressed properly. The little boys had blazers and their mothers. Not like the Islington. And their Greenberg. mothers were doing this and, you know, and this. And then I and got them. And I, fame a couple yeah, of years later. And I said to them, I said to the parents, I said, now, look, um, because this is a recording, 
You where can't. Are we? in Isling, where are we in Isling? This is New York. Oh, okay. Right. You can't come into out. the studio. And they were all like, and I said, I have two children of my own. I'm not going to eat your babies. They'll be fine. And so I got the kids alone into the studio and then we had them laughing and that laughter at the end of their, of their bridge, yeah. that's them laughing at jokes that, that we were telling each other and stuff. They had the best time. It was so loose and, and kind of fun. And then they came down, running down the hallway like kids, as opposed to professional actors, which is how they had arrived. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah we look forward to the court case anyway. Yeah. Actually, no, okay, <laughs> while, we're, while we're on this incredibly tricky ground, uh, the two words you said to get the moaning and crying on Berlin out of the kid. Two kids. Well, Two kids. So, okay, but there were more than two, two words. words. Well, okay. there, but in Joshua's case, to, get, to yes. get Joshua, who was the 18-month-old, it was go to bed. And three <laughs> words, go to bed. <laughs> and, and that, Joshua, and, bed. Every night, Joshua was like, no, Joshua, you're going to bed. And he would cry. So that was like, that was uh, clockwork, basically. I brought a Nagra home and I had a nice wow. microphone. I went, Joshua, time for bed. <laughs> I got so I got that, but the the pounding on the door and the screaming mummy mummy mummy, um, I explained to uh, my older son David who was um, six at the time, and uh, and I said okay look you know I'm recording this and it's a it's a story and the kids are outside they're locked outside and they're trying to get their mom's attention she's in the kitchen. So pound on the door and yell, mummy, mummy, mummy. That was it. So David starts pounding on the door going, mummy, 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 mom, mummy. And little Joshua is 18 months old and does everything his brother does. He starts yelling, mummy, mummy, mummy. And actually, if you solo that track ever, you can hear Joshua say to David, I can find myself with mummy. You know, it's like, there she is right there. What are we doing? You know, so, but David was, David was a, a, a theatrical kid too. And, um, and so he sure. plays a part and that, and then, but what I did do is I took those two elements into the studio and I put them through an LA-2A actually, a, com uh, a compressor and just cranked the gain until it distorted and it became more and more and more distorted. And that is what gives it that sense of like, just terror. It's horrific. And yeah. It's horrific. You can't, it's you, he, you should, he, you you should know, have actually he, had a sort of no children were upset in the making of this album. Yeah. You know, he remained a baby. He remained a baby for the sake of his career forever. He was, he's the one on Nevermind as well. Oh God, Bob, we could keep going. I can't, we could keep sorry. going. But actually oh, I no, have no, can, no, a school it's... choir to go to. Even my, I have a school concert to go to as it's Christmas. There's Good a lot man. of those going and my son's got one and I'm going to have to leave very soon. I don't know whether you could talk about this, but you did it. You well, you can because you recently had a very public spat with Kanye on Twitter. You're 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 not some old geezer who's who's retired quietly, are you? And you were standing <laughs> up for Taylor Swift. I love that. Who you've well, yeah. you've mixed. Yeah, I was. Like. I had I had worked on the um, a big a, Taylor fan on the Speak Now DVD. I you know mixed that yeah. and the CD that went with it, and. Um, and spend time with her and with her parents and got to know her a little bit. And I just thought she was a, you know, a really lovely girl, really sweet. And, uh, and here's Kanye going, um, 
well, first of all, the article is on the front page of the New York Times about Kanye West's never completed Pablo album, right? He, he's taking it back. Oh, yeah. He's already released it. He's taking it back and is working on it again to release it again. And like, I'm old school in the sense that you, you're going to build something, you make the plans, you build it. When it's finished, it's finished and you move on. And yes, a year later, you might think that there was something you could have or should have done. And, and maybe you get lucky enough to be able to do a revisit or something like that. But this is a guy who never finished. He just kept taking it back in, taking it back in. And it was really pissing me off. That wasn't enough. It was front page of the New York Times on a Sunday morning, my time, my paper, <laughs> get out of my face. Anyway, but in that opening three paragraphs, the bottom paragraph, he talks about Taylor Swift and he goes, she owe me a fuck. She owe me an F dash dash K. I made that bitch B dash 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 H famous. And that's when I went into shark mode and I was just, my eyes turned steel gray and I went, he must be stopped. <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote, uh, like a like an op-ed, like a little letter that I sent to Bob Lefset. And I I, Lefset. I figured, you know, it's gonna go out to the Lefset's letter. Like they're all probably kindred spirits. It's, you know, it'll go out there, everybody have a good laugh. I compared him to a lot of people he didn't appreciate being compared to. And I said he will never, you know, what's his legacy? Like he will ne never be remembered as much as MC Hammer <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and Macklemore. Cause I just knew, you know, like if it ever got to him, that would, that would be like, you know, and, and, um, and I did want to stick it to him. I was pissed off at the guy. And I said, his, his greatest talent was at, um, you know, at being noticed. He's like, he, rem he's like the streaker who runs across the field in the middle of the critical play in the big game, you know, and, and that's, that's his talent, greatest talent. And that was it. So I did that. I went to sleep Sunday night blithely unaware that um, somebody had showed it to him. He was on the West Coast. I was on, I was in Nashville. So somebody had showed it to him and midnight in uh, West Coast time when I was fast asleep, he starts tweeting about it. And it, and it starts off, it's like 12.01.15. You know, who the fuck is Bob Ezrin? Then 12.01.45. It's all farts like Bob Ezrin that don't give ye the, the, you know, the respect that he deserved. 12.01.55. And it starts getting faster, <laughs> faster, faster. There's like this string of things. And Bob Ezrin's kids are, are dying of embarrassment right now because their father didn't understand the power of ye and ye. I should give Yeezys to all his kids to make them feel better because their father is such a loser. Blah, 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 blah. This goes on like this. My daughter, Sarah, is in Bali leading a, a, a yoga retreat. She's the first one to wake up and she's got a ton of text messages from her friends in LA. What did your dad do to Kanye? You know, so she goes on, she looks at the thing. She sees what Kanye says about how they're embarrassed. And she responds to Kanye and says, my father always taught us uh, to meet anger with love and to tell the truth. You're a leader. Choose love. Um, you know, that's a, my little girl. My son, Jeffrey, who's a lawyer, was in Paris on vacation. He's the next Not one. Not on a yoga retreat. Not on a yoga retreat. <laughs> yeah. He's the next one to wake up. And he sees all this. He goes, 
Who's Bob Ezrin? Question mark, question mark, question mark. His legacy is, and he lists all the artists that I've worked with, all the way down, including Jay-Z, right? Not all this stuff. And then he goes, yours in capital letters is yet to be determined. And then, and so on. And it just goes on, you know, and it's like, oh my God. So by the time I wake up on Monday morning, I have 62 text messages and it's all about Kanye. Then I get called by CNN and CBS. And, and like at first it was kind of funny. By Tuesday, I was the number one trending thing on Twitter for 15 minutes. I have my 15 minutes of fame. Thank you. <laughs> for 15 minutes, well, I was the number one trending thing in the world on Twitter, thanks to Kanye West. And, um, and then by Tuesday night, I was getting more calls and Jan just looks at me, my wife Jan just looks at me and goes, that's enough. Stum. She knows. And she knew. So I said, okay, thank you. Yes, I'll, I'll shut up now. But I was loving it because I just thought it was, you know, uh, it was getting to him. Now, what turns out to be true is that then he, when he, when he wasn't getting a rise out of me anymore, then he turns back to Taylor and he turned to Ludacris, I believe, and started taking him on. And the, the, just the puking out invective got so terrible that, um, Chris Kardashian, mom, took his phone away. So I, you know, and again, James Guthrie will probably disagree with me on this because he was probably there. And, <laughs> and um, but, uh, but I, my, oh, Bob, we love a bit of controversy. Yeah. So you're still, you're still out there, you know, that's yeah. the thing, isn't it? This isn't a guy that is just like the career ends in the. I'm still making records. 70s. Why would my career end? You know, until sure. somebody shoots me, sure. I, you know. Not to mention, can we also point out all your, all your other fantastic initiatives, your great education stuff you're involved in and all sorts, you know, it's. Absolutely. Music rising with the yeah. edge. Yes. And, and the envir so, and environmental causes which is you know that's risen to the top of the heap in what, what, what are you working on creatively right now um i'm i just uh finished a film with edward bertinsky called in the wake of progress which is an environmental project it's a massive immersive installation and um i'm i just finished mixing uh, a live alice cooper thing dvd and now i'm finishing up uh a, an album called road by with alice cooper or road or road kill we're not sure yet and um and uh, also finishing up an mc5 record working on um a very big concert three concert tribute package that i can't talk about right now it's been such a pleasure having yeah, you my on. pleasure with you guys well, it's really great to see you again and it was terrific to see you on yeah. tour it was really wonderful what a great show it, you were it, you were it both was amazing. so great UK man You're, the, it was so great just having your energy around it was really really lovely well next time you go out let me know I'll be there again fantastic I mean there was some stuff in there I know everyone's <laughs> going to be typing under our social media posts saying things like you know there needs to be a part two what about and all the Floyd heads are going to be complaining we didn't do the, all the other I, albums I, at one well. point you know at one point I thought do you know what this rate we're, we're just not getting to the wall which is not and we, and we didn't really we didn't touch on the division bell or you know momentary lapse or any of that <clears throat> i've got to go to a choir or something you like go that. to your choir a mate. Concert. um that was fantastic so keep it right here people um and thanks to ben our producer we're, 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 i think we're I don't, are we around next week we, we've got another one coming i think we have oh, oh we have got we another have. one coming up we've got a, oh, we've got a yes. great one next oh, week yes. really oh, good yes. one we have. we have we have see you then it's good night from me and good night from them
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 